Our New Testament scripture reading this Lord's Day is from Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught? thy brother. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself, and that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. 
hearing the Lord teaches us that we are not to act unlovingly toward one another, even if we have Christian liberty to enjoy certain things that God has given to us that are indifferent in and of themselves, we don't have the right to use something if it will cause a brother to fall, to be stumbled, to fall into sin, to be misled, not having the same ability to partake or to use this particular item with a good conscience, with faith. Let us not step or set stumbling blocks before one another, but act in love toward one another, as Paul herein exhorts. Our text for the Sermon this Lord's Day, again, is from the same text which we considered last Lord's Day. As I mentioned, we're looking at this text in two parts. The text is Proverbs. 17 verse 15 therein we read he that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just even they both are abomination to the Lord last Lord's day you'll recall that we considered how the office of civil rule was established by God according to Romans 13 verses 1 through 4 in order to be a terror to the wicked and a blessing to the righteous. Paul states by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the office of civil magistrate was ordained by God to be a minister of God to thee for good. That is, to be a minister of God for the benefit and the profit of the faithful church of Jesus Christ and for the welfare of the citizens within that nation. That being the purpose for which God established the office of civil rulers, the magistrate who has access to the word of God is thereby bound and obligated to rule according to God's word in his administration of justice. He doesn't have any options if he has available to him the word of God. He is bound to rule according to scripture. Otherwise, how can he possibly be God's minister if he does not use God's word? For all his authority, according to the scripture, is delegated to him by God. He is said to be God's minister. Not his own minister, nor even first and foremost the minister of the people. He is indeed called to be a civil servant and to the citizens within his nation. But that is subordinate to the fact that he is first and foremost called to be God's minister, as clearly delineated in Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Let me read again for you just that verse. Romans 13, verse 4. For he is the minister of God to thee, for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. How can he execute wrath against those who do evil if he does not have God's word to determine what is evil? If he doesn't use it, he's simply making up the rules as he goes along. 
There is no absolute standard by which to rule and to determine who is good, who is righteous, and who is wicked and who is evil. I would submit, dear ones, that he cannot legitimately be called the minister to even his citizens, the citizens of his own nation, if he is not first fulfilling his calling to be the minister of God, ruling on behalf of God according to God's commandments as revealed in the Holy Scripture. For if he is not God's minister, he will not be the minister of God to thee for good, nor will he be a terror to the wicked in the nation, nor will he execute God's wrath and holy vengeance upon those who do evil as God requires him to do. Now, when the civil magistrate refuses to do what God calls him to do, perhaps because the people do not want him to do what's right, you know, popular opinion, that's what rules so often in our nation, or perhaps he's forbidden from doing what's right because the Constitution does not allow him to do what's right, or Congress does not allow him to do what's right, or the President doesn't allow him to do what's right, or the Supreme Court does not allow him to do what's right, he still dispossesses himself from having legitimate moral authority to rule on behalf of God as God's minister. In such a case, we obey all lawful commands he issues because they are agreeable to God's word. But we do not obey the magistrate as God's minister, as God's lawful minister. We submit for the sake of fear because of the size of the sword which he wields, not for the sake of conscience, because he rules as God's minister. Now let no one under, misunderstand our position here. We love our country. We are not anti-government. We seek peace with all men, especially with civil magistrates, as much as is possible. And we pray for the time when our civil magistrates will indeed kiss the Son of God, as stated in Psalm 2. We simply cannot acknowledge them to be the minister of God to us for good when they flagrantly and habitually justify the wicked and condemn the righteous, which is what the laws of this land require them to do, as we shall see. Last week we considered from our text in Proverbs 17:15 that it is an abomination to justify the wicked. This Sabbath, we shall consider the last two main points from our text. It is an abomination to condemn the righteous. And then, we'll end today upon this main point. It is not an abomination for God to justify the ungodly. First of all, then, it is an abomination to condemn the righteous. Just as God speaking through King Solomon declares that it is a hateful abomination in God's sight for rulers or anyone else for that matter to justify that which is wicked, so is likewise the same hateful abomination in God's sight for rulers or anyone else to condemn that which is righteous. Dear ones, we as human beings, whether magistrates, whether church officers, whether owners, proprietors, presidents of corporations, or parents, whatever rule we may have as human beings, we must never 
suppose that we have the right to approve of that which is wicked and evil or to disapprove of that which is righteous and good according to God's word. A moral wrong <clears throat> which violates one of the commandments of God can never be a legitimate civil right no matter how many laws that are passed. Our legitimate civil rights, dear ones, proceed from God and His moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments. God never gave magistrates the right to disregard any of God's Ten Commandments. But that is precisely what the magistrates and laws of our land do. Let me illustrate how the civil magistrate, by his law, continues to condemn that which is righteous. Consider, and uh, perhaps, a, perhaps a little bit of overlap from last Lord's Day, but nevertheless, to make the point. First, the civil magistrate condemns that which is righteous by legally promoting and pro uh, protecting all false religion within this nation. The civil rulers have not only justified that which is evil and contrary to God's law, but they have also condemned in tolerating, protecting legally all false religions, they have condemned the one true Christian religion of the Bible, which should alone have legal protection within any nation, according to the second commandment. Thou shalt have... Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Pertains to all false religion, all monuments of idolatry that are erected. They should be removed by the civil magistrate, not tolerated. Civil magistrates are just as obligated to keep God's law, all ten of the commandments, as you and I are, as citizens or as members of the Church of Jesus Christ. God's law does not pertain to simply one segment of society. Remember that none are exempt in their callings, not only in their persons, none are exempt in their callings from upholding God's holy commandments. Not even the President, or Congress, or the Supreme Court. The First Amendment to the Constitution actually forbids the magistrates of this land from keeping the first and second of God's Ten Commandments in establishing the one true Christian religion and removing all false religion. For you see, dear ones, in tolerating all religions and giving them all equal legal status, they put all religions on the same plane and make them all equal. Basically saying that the one true Christian religion is not, in fact, the one true Christian religion, that there are many religions that are acceptable. They're all equal legally in the eyes of the law. In such a case, legally, there is no difference between the one true Christian religion, that which is expressed, we believe, in historic Protestantism. There's no difference between that religion and witchcraft, according to the law. There's no difference between the one true Christian religion and Satanism before the eyes of the law. There's no difference 
in the eyes of the law between the one true Christian religion and Islam or Buddhism or Romanism. Dear ones, those systems are leading literally millions of people to hell in our land. God calls lawful civil magistrates who are the ministers of God to thee for good to remove all such monuments to idolatry. We believe the systems ought to be destroyed, but we call the people because we love the people within those systems out to embrace the one true Christian religion. We call them, we witness to them, we testify to them because we love them to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we despise and we hate the system as leading people to hell. You know, when the Emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, in the 4th century, after Christianity had been established under Constantine as the, as the national and established religion within the Roman Empire, Julian sought to eradicate that. He sought to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. He wanted to return to paganism, to heathenism. You know, one of the planks which he instituted in order to eradicate Christianity was to legally recognize all religions. To tolerate false religion is to destroy the one true Christian religion. It is to mix it. It is to cause such a, an, an adulteration of the one true religion that eventually there's not a whole lot of difference between the one true Christian religion and, for example, Romanism. Dear ones, sadly to say, regretfully to say, our Constitution and laws likewise condemn the one true Christian religion in their legally recognizing all false religions. A second way in which we might illustrate how our civil magistrates today do condemn that which is righteous by legally protecting businesses which are open on the Sabbath day. The civil magistrate not only has justified the moral evil of Sabbath-breaking, contrary to the fourth commandment, but has also condemned that which is righteous in God's sight, namely, the Christian Sabbath as revealed in His Holy Word. A third way in which civil magistrates today do condemn the righteous is by legally protecting abortion so that unborn children have less rights than animals. The civil government not only justifies their murder, but also condemns to death those who are innocent of any civil crime, that is, the unborn child. Therefore, the civil government justifies murderers and condemns the most helpless to death. It has been pointed out many times that if Hitler was devoid of any moral authority to rule because of his wants and slaughter of six million Jews, how much more devoid of moral authority to rule is a government that legally protects the slaughter of roughly 40 million helpless babies. A fourth way in which 
our civil magistrates sadly condemn that which is righteous by legally protecting adultery so that it is not a crime to be punished any longer, but rather a civil right to sleep around with whomever one chooses. The civil magistrates not only justify the adulterer, but also, in so doing, condemn the faithful spouse. Because, dear ones, in no fault divorces, the adulterer and the faithful spouse are equal before the law. The innocent party has no more legal rights before the law than the guilty. That adulterous party. And so the civil magistrates condemn again that which is good and righteous. I would submit to you another illustration of how civil magistrates do condemn the righteous. And that is by legally protecting sodomy and the so-called right for sodomite partners to receive the same benefits that married spouses receive, to be able to adopt children. And I would, would put before you that it's simply a matter of time should God not intervene before we have homosexual sodomite marriages legally recognized in our country. Simply a matter of time as even some of the European nations now are beginning to do. Dear ones, when this happens, do you see what is condemned? When we legally protect such unions, we condemn the established and sacred institution of marriage. That's what the civil magistrate does. He condemns by tolerating sodomite unions. He condemns God's institution of marriage. The divine institution of marriage is in place on the same level legally as a sodomite union. God, God's holy institution of marriage is therefore condemned as being righteous by our civil magistrates. Many times throughout history, a civil magistrate devoid of divine authority to rule has condemned the witnesses of Christ to death. Whether it be Naboth, who was condemned to death because he would not sell his inheritance, his vineyard, which had been given to him and passed on him by his forefathers, by God's mercy and grace, he would not sell it to the wicked Ahab. False witnesses were secured to stand up and say that Naboth had committed blasphemy and he was taken out of stone and put to death. Or whether it be Daniel who would not discontinue his praying to the one true living God of the Bible when ordered to do so and was therefore cast into the den of lions. Or whether it be Jeremiah who continued to preach against the apostasy of Judah and the captivity, letting the people of Judah know that captivity to Babylon waited them. And he was cast into a muddy cistern by king and by princes for what they called treason. But dear ones, listen carefully. Faithfulness to God cannot be treason to the civil magistrate, no matter what the civil magistrate may say. Faithfulness to God is not treason 
to the magistrate. That has been the stand of all Christians through all the ages. Otherwise, there would not have been any martyrs. We would have, instead of Fox's Book of Martyrs, empty pages. But hundreds and thousands of pages of those who suffered against the tyranny of civil magistrates and the tyranny of false religion. Or whether it be our Lord Jesus Christ who was condemned to death by the Jews and then by the Romans, we are simply walking in the footsteps of our Savior. If we are condemned for standing for the truth and we're condemned by the civil magistrate, if we're called traitors, we're accused of being treasonous. So was Christ, so was Paul, so were the apostles. And so are the faithful witnesses and martyrs of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. Whether it be the apostles of Christ or John Wycliffe or John Huss or Martin Luther or Christopher Love or Donald Cargill or James Rennick or any of the faithful witnesses and martyrs of Christ, even those who suffer today for Christ and his righteousness and truth. There was, it is an abomination for magistrates to condemn the righteous. But that is precisely what Christ called us to be willing to endure for his namesake. To be condemned for being righteous. To be condemned for following Christ's truth. That's what the Lord calls us to do. For the Lord says if we will suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. And in so doing, as we suffer with him, we demonstrate that we are united to Christ who is our head. We're simply his body. We're members of his body. But we show our union with Jesus Christ as we suffer, even as Christ suffered at the hands of those who are in godly magistrates. And let me briefly say as well that church officers using this, this particular portion of our text concerning it, it being a, uh, an abomination to condemn the just. This can happen also within the church by church officers who can condemn the righteous in, uh, in tolerating that which is false and in censuring those who faithfully adhere to the truth. You see, there is God did not uh, give the keys of the kingdom to his ministers and to his elders in order that they might teach and rule against the truth as revealed in Scripture. Thus, when church officers simply tolerate false doctrine, false worship, or church government to be taught or practiced within the church, they also condemn that which is true and that which is righteous in so doing. The same is true when we as parents tolerate evil within our homes by what we watch or what we allow to be watched on television or what we tolerate to be listen to by way of music that is contrary to the commandments of God. Darwin's toleration of that which is false is not neutral in God's sight. Hear me clearly. Toleration, many people think, is not, is not promoting that which is evil. 
Many people believe toleration is something neutral. It is not something neutral when we tolerate what is evil. And we have the ability, because of the authority invested in us, to not tolerate that which is evil. And we do nothing about it. That is an abomination to God, according to Proverbs 17, 15. That is justifying the wicked and condemning the just. It is not kind. It is not loving, nor is it forbearing to tolerate that which is evil or that which is false within the church. It is destructive. It is destructive. It destroys the truth by putting error and sin on the same level with truth and righteousness. And saying to the people, in effect, pick and choose whichever you want. Remember that Christ says he hates false doctrine that is tolerated within his church. To the church of Pergamos in Revelation 2.15, the glorified head of the church says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Which thing I hate. Although authority to discipline those who persist in obstinate sin or error is given by Christ to the ministers and elders of the church, we must be ever so careful that we do not misuse or abuse the authority which Christ has given to us so as to condemn the righteous who faithfully stand for the truth of God. For to do so... For to do so, listen carefully, for to do so is unwittingly to condemn Christ who reveals his truth to us when we condemn those who stand for the truth. It is to condemn Christ. We must be ever so careful to use the key of discipline which Christ has given to us as ministers and elders for the spiritual welfare of those who become obstinate in sin or error. We must do so in, in absolute uh, humility, not exalting ourselves in arrogance and pride as those who are filled with love of power, like the Diotrephes in 3 John, verses 9-11. through 11, He loved to have preeminence. And in so doing, he put out of the church, he excommunicated those who were faithful to Jesus Christ, not even tolerating the apostles themselves to come into their fellowship and communion. We must do so, dear ones, when it is necessary to, to censure, to administer discipline within the church. We must do so out of love for erring brethren, to see them restored, not out of personal vengeance to get even with them. We must do so in order to honor Christ, who calls us as church officers to love him and to love his truth more than we love anything else in this world. Thus, the Lord here in Proverbs 17:15 declares that he abominates those who justify, that is, declare righteous, the wicked. And he also abominates those who condemn or declare evil, those who are just. Beloved, let us fervently pray that God would steer this truth into our minds and into the minds of all of those who serve as magistrates within our nation, from the president on down, 
For righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. According to Proverbs 14, verse 34. Our second main point is this. It is not an abomination for God to justify the ungodly. We just read that it is an abomination to justify the wicked. So we're presented here with a somewhat of a dilemma. How is it that God then can justify the ungodly? The Romish church takes what has been said in Proverbs 17.15 that he that justifies the wicked and condemns the just is an abomination to God and seeks to apply this truth in precisely the same way to our justification before God. The Romish church argues <clears throat> that if it is an abomination for a civil ruler or an ecclesiastical church officer to justify the wicked, how much more of an abomination, Rome would argue, it must be for God, the supreme ruler, to justify the wicked, as is taught by Reformed and Presbyterian churches, as is taught by our Protestant forefathers. It is indeed, dear ones, <clears throat> true that we teach God justifies the wicked. We teach that. We believe it wholeheartedly. We praise God for that truth, that God justifies the wicked. Our larger catechism, question 70, correctly states, justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners. Not unto those who are holy, not unto those who are righteous, not unto those who are good. It's an act of God's free grace unto sinners, unto the wicked, unto the God, ungodly. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul clearly states in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when speaking of justification and how justification is not of our works, is not of anything within us. He says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If God justified us on the basis of something within us, then it would be reckoned to us on account of debt. God would be indebted to us. to justify us. Verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, who justifieth the ungodly. You see, the Lord, according to Paul, does not justify us on the basis of anything within us. Otherwise, as we said, it would be a work and it would be a debt which God owes to us. But God is not a debtor to anyone. God justifies freely. How then do we reconcile Proverbs 17.15 where it is an abomination to justify the wicked with Romans 4 or 5 where God in fact himself justifies the ungodly. Well let me 
seek to unravel that question just very briefly. Justify does not mean, first of all, to make one righteous, as Rome teaches. For no civil judge in hearing a case ever made a person righteous. No civil judge ever made a person innocent. The person who stands before the judge may in reality either be innocent or guilty. The judge in a court of law does not make him innocent who stands before him, but rather declares him to be innocent. Rome, you see, teaches that God makes those who are wicked. He makes them righteous by infusing them, infusing them with grace, infusing them with faith and repentance and holiness so that one is only righteous because God has made him righteous in his actual person, in his actual being. His righteousness, dear ones, is determined by what has been infused within him, according to Rome. Therefore, it is something in him that God looks to as he justifies a person according to Rome. If that righteousness which has been infused within him, though, can be lost through the commission of mortal sin, as Rome teaches, then one can lose his justification and be forever condemned to hell. The Romish church, in order to come up with this view, must alter the meaning of justify as it is used in Romans 4, 5, and must, instead of being consistent with other judicial passages where the word justify always means to declare righteous, not to make righteous, in this case, when it comes to salvation, Rome changes the meaning of the word so that it no longer means that God declares us to be righteous, but that God makes us righteous. And that's a fatal mistake. That's a fatal error. Because in that case, God justifies us because of what is within man, even if he's put it there. It is still something within us, which, even according to Rome, can be lost. Consistency when speaking of a human judge, or even the divine judge, requires that we always interpret the word justify in the same sense. In both cases, whether Proverbs 17:15 or whether Romans 4 or 5, it means to declare righteous. Now, our Protestant Reformed forefathers condemned the view of Rome as a false gospel based upon righteousness that's found within men. God, in fact, does not contradict himself in Romans 4 or 5 for Proverbs 17, 15, and Romans 4, 5 are both true. They teach the same meaning with regard to what the word justify means. The word justify in both verses means to declare righteous. And the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not found in a righteousness which is worked within us, dear ones, and which may be lost, and which due to our own sin can be corrupted and polluted, 
But the glory and the beauty of the gospel is that God declares us to be righteous on the basis and on the ground of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, an alien righteousness. A righteousness external to ourselves, which we can only receive by faith and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. When speaking to Romanist apologists and theologians, those who are well-schooled in the thoughts and views of Rome, they can make it sound so close to the truth. Dear ones, there's a hell of difference. There's a chasm, a space that engulfs hell itself that separates that view, that system of justification from the biblical view of justification. No one can be saved by trusting in their own righteousness. Whether they have worked it up or whether it has been placed within them, no one can be saved by trusting in their own righteousness. It is only through trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for only He kept the law of God perfectly. And only He suffered upon the cross, taking our sins upon Him and suffering in the infinite wrath of God and justice of God for our sins, the sins of His people. Thus, dear ones, God does justify the ungodly, not by excusing, not by winking at or condoning our sins. But God justifies the ungodly because He has provided a surety He's provided a substitute to pay for our sins. Someone has to pay for sin. It's either ourselves or divine appointed substitutes or surety. God has provided one. That is why in civil justice, the wicked cannot be justified because there is no substitute. There is no one to take their place. We cannot justify in civil justice the ungodly. But we but God can justify the ungodly because Jesus Christ bore the punishment of our sin upon the cross. Well does this doctrine give us a license to sin? As Rome says that it does? Absolutely not. For when we understand that Christ suffered to put away our sins, that He endured the torments of hell, the wrath of His Father, that He suffered to redeem us from the curse of the law and from the power of sin in our life, we are moved out of love and gratitude to Christ, not to work in order to become justified or in order to retain our justification, but we work, we serve the Lord because we have been once and for all justified and declared righteous by God on the basis of Christ's perfect and unchangeable righteousness. We are never, dear ones, to justify the wicked, but God has justified the wicked by placing all of our wickedness upon His only begotten Son 
that we might become his children forever and ever. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Turn not away, those of you who hear today, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn not away from the gospel that is offered to you. Receive Christ in his righteousness, for to do so is everlasting life. Turn, to turn away, dear ones, to ignore this offer of the gospel, this righteousness of Christ, is to consign yourself to eternal damnation in hell. Receive the offer of Christ's righteousness which is freely made unto you now. Receive it by faith. Reach out. Embrace Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee that Thou hast given to us good news in spite of, Father, what our sins deserve, Thou hast paid even Thine only begotten Son uh, from the power, O Lord, of sin. That we may, Father, be given new life. That we might become, O Lord, Thy beloved children, adopted into Thy family by Thy grace. That we might be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be given a heavenly inheritance and hope that never tarnishes or fades away, that in, even in the midst of the trials and the persecution, the condemnation which we might receive for standing for truth and righteousness in this life, our hope ever remains before us, which no magistrate or ruler can take away. And we do thank Thee and praise Thee, our, our Lord and our God, for Thy word and Thy truth for applying it to our, our hearts and our minds this day. And Lord, we might, that we might live according to thy, thy word, that we might love thy holy commandments, that we might cherish our Savior all the more. We do ask, Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.